You're listening to Amphibicast. This episode of Amphibicast is sponsored by Grey Ghost Creations. Specializing in unique wildlife art for lovers of reptiles, amphibians, and arachnids, Grey Ghost Creations offers a wide variety of art prints, stickers, pins, necklaces, and more. To find more unique original art, be sure to visit Grey Ghost Creations on Etsy at www.greyghostcreations.etsy.com. Welcome back, everyone. Thanks for joining me again. Uh, this week is going to be the long-anticipated interview with Mark Pepper. I have the great fortune of talking to Mark this week, and we've got a lot of ground we're going to cover. I've got a lot of great questions, and I had a lot of input from listeners, too, and I'm really looking forward to this week's conversation. But before we get into it, of course, I want to thank everybody for the nice uh, reviews and all the support. Five-star uh, five reviews go a long way. I appreciate that. And thanks to all the patrons on Patreon. If you want to support the show for as low as a dollar a month, check out the Patreon page. Uh, you can also become a $5 tier uh, patron. And at that tier, you'll get a shout-out at the beginning of an upcoming episode. And you'll also find links in the show notes to uh, the merch store if you want to get some cool merch and a 10% discount off of an in-situ ecosystem's vivarium. If you make a purchase through that link in the, uh, in the link tree, you'll get a 10% discount just for being a listener. And uh, I think that just about sums it up. I've been really looking forward to this conversation. Mark, thank you for joining me. How are you doing tonight? Yeah, no problem. I'm doing pretty good. Yourself? I'm doing great. I'm doing great. I've got a lot of a lot of ground. I'm really happy that we got to uh, talk. And um, I, I just want to give everyone, I just want to give a quick shout out to uh, Fadi from uh, Daffy's Reptiles, Daffy's Roundtable. Uh, he was kind of instrumental in putting the two of us together. So, um, dude, if you're listening out there, Fadi, I want to thank you so much for... Um, for uh, helping me get to, get to talk to Mark. So <laughs> it's going to be a lot of fun. So, Mark, I've got so many questions, but I want you to just tell us about yourself. Tell us your story, because you've got a, quite a few years involved in, in the frog world. What were some of your earliest experiences with amphibians, and what led you to where you are today? Um, my earliest uh, experience would have been probably just catching tadpoles in a ditch as a kid. Uh trying to keep them in jars and then probably my earliest uh experience that really stuck with me was finding probably a blue spotted salamander or red uh, red f's up at my grandparents house in in bracebridge which is in kind of cottage country in muskokas of ontario canada and that's probably the first time i was really inspired to uh you know look into keeping keeping amphibians uh, before that point i was obsessed with snakes I still am deeply interested in snakes, but that was kind of the, the turning point. And then kind of along the same time was that, um, or not too long after that, we were showing a video in school, the Nat Geo video that came out, I think, in 1983. Um, uh, the one on the rainforest, and uh, there's that was the first time I saw tropical frogs, like the Adelopis and the, the Dendrobatids that were featured, and the Golden Toads kind of, uh, kind of set me on another obsessive path towards uh, learning all i could about them uh did you ever happen to see the national geographic uh issue with poison frogs i think it, it was i mean at the time it was dendrobates whatever i think it was uh, pamilio they hadn't classified it as ufaga but it was a strawberry frog um issue did you ever happen to see that when you were young too yeah i saw that for sure i think there's one in 95 which i saw maybe that's the one you're talking about um and then I have several copies of the issue from that I've bought over the years at yard sales or antique stores or whatever. Uh, just when I happened across them, of the one with the two granulifer and uh, 
in the uh, the fungus on the on the cover of it, or maybe it's just one granulifera. But anyway, that's kind of always stuck out as a key issue for me. Yeah, that's pretty amazing. And what led you towards dart frogs? I mean, obviously, there's there's so many different species of frogs to choose from. I mean, you mentioned salamanders earlier. Why focus on dendrobatids? Like, what drew you to them specifically as opposed to other things like adelopis or whatever else? Um, that's, that's a good question. I'm not entirely sure. It must have been. I remember seeing them. The first time I saw live ones was that there was a small reptile zoo in Windsor, Ontario called Reptiland or, or something like that uh, when I was young. Um, and I remember they had a couple really small tinctorious. But I didn't know there were small ones then. I assume they were full size. So that's kind of kind of probably what I fixated on them just through reading articles too and nature magazines and stuff a little like a fine they just fascinated me the colors and and the idea just the whole idea behind them and the fact they're from the rainforest which um you know I was always obsessed with learning about the rainforest and you know dreamt all throughout my childhood of going to the rainforest and being able to see these animals in the wild and not just the animals the plants and you know the whole ecosystem um it's kind of always been interesting so dart frogs were um to me embodied the rainforest more than anything else what was the first species that you kept? Uh, the first species of dart frog, first actual species of tropical frog I kept was green mantellas. Um, and the first species of dart frogs I ever kept was uh, just green and black dendrobates erratus that I was finally able to find when I was 17 at a, at a reptile expo up in Toronto. Um, and I think I paid a crazy price for them. And my dad was furious when he found out what I paid for them. And lectured my mom about me not knowing the value of a dollar and all that, but I never regretted buying them. So that was, those are my first ones. What year was this? Uh, this was probably back in I think nineteen ninety seven or ninety eight. Um, but yeah, quite a quite a, quite a while ago now. So yeah, the old days. I remember. I've told the story in the podcast before, but I remember the first time I was I was offered any kind of dart frogs was around nineteen ninety five ninety six, and at the time I was like. someone might have offered me like a unicorn i'm like i have no idea what i would remotely do with it and like the guy was walking me through the care i'm like "Ah, i don't know so i kind of missed out on that that early wave but in retrospect i I wish i would have gotten them yeah there was they were almost impossible to find up here then like i looked you know for probably three or four years before that every time i you know was up in toronto or anywhere near an exotic pet store i'd ask anyone i could find and and the few American breeders around, I had, I had emailed all of them at one time or another, but none of them could ship to Canada. And there's all the, you know, the CITES issues and all that. So no, no one wanted to undertake that. So they were really, really hard to source uh, for me up here anyway. How was it getting dart frogs into the Canadian hobby? Like at what point did all that coalesce and you were able to get them into Canada and start working with them? Um. Yeah, I imported from, I guess, there was stuff coming in that started coming in uh, more frequently when with the Panama shipments, I guess, uh, early on. And before that, there were the odd, like, you know, poor credit pet center would import Tinctorious or the odd stuff through. Probably most of the stuff came through the old Glades Herp outfit in, in Florida. And there was another, I was got into contact with another breeder named Phil Ramos really early on. And he had some, he had some stuff. So we, we traded stuff. And there was another, another lady up here named Hildy who, also imported from Glades some some azurias early on and leucomelis and you know stuff we take for granted now but it was kind of grail type stuff back then and then 
not long after that, I, you know, I started importing myself and imported from, you know, from Marcus Brees down in, in Miami several times and, and just, just acquire new stuff. And what was the learning curve with the early imports? Because like, I mean, at, at the time, I mean, again, the guy who offered it to me, he just told me, he goes, you got to keep them super humid and feed them pinhead crickets. And that was really all, I mean, that's the, the, the extent of like my knowledge at the time. What was it like working early on with imports of wild caught and trying to figure out the best husbandry practices for them? Well, the first experience I had with Wildcat was uh, some blue jeans pamelia that I picked up probably around early on too at a at a pet store in London. And luckily enough, they both lived. Um, I had them for eight years before they started breeding, and they bred really well for probably seven years after that. So I got really lucky with that. Um, and then I got, I guess there's another importer in Calgary, Jared Wolf, who was active, really active importing from Europe at the 90s. So a lot of stuff came in through him too. Um, and I got, I actually had, I got a few, you know, I got my first, I guess they were called Renita May Adventure Maculata then, the French Guiana ones. I, I got off him then. And I got a few kinds of Tinctorious off them too. And th- those all did fairly well. So I wasn't really importing early on, you know, I wasn't importing wild caught per se, I guess, the, well, I guess the farms, the, the Pamelian stuff that came through Marcus Brees, but Marcus, I'm not sure exactly what he'd done with them, but they were all came in, in in fantastic shape coming through Marcus Brees. So I never, luckily I never, I never suffered uh, much in the way of a, a vicious learning curve. And that's probably why I kept at it because I was lucky enough to get, to get good animals or to get captive bred stuff early on. And it could have been, a lot of luck on my half on my behalf i had more trouble at the time buying at that time i'd be buying all the mantella i could find too in the pet stores and i had a, you know a lot of issues keeping some of those imports from the 90s alive you know i'd buy three or four pulchra or whatever i could find at a, at a pet store and i'd probably have a 50 percent survival rate with those um and that was that was disheartening but um but then over the years it just seemed like the exporters, the importers learn how to handle them better. And at least up here in Canada, what I could pick up at shows, uh, the, the quality of the mantellas were, were coming in, you know, better and better every year. So that was only, a, you know, only an issue really early on. That's interesting. Yeah, I remember when in the imports from Madagascar stopped. I don't remember the exact year, but for a while there was all different species of Europlatus came in and there were mantellas and... Then it all just stopped once Madagascar closed its borders. Yeah. Yeah, there used to be some wild mantella coming in. Like I remember the green the green crocea and the green myelotympanums and yellow myelotympanums and um yeah, they used to is me it's a shame that no one really bred that stuff uh to lock it into the hobby at all, but there it was you know, years and years ago, there's really interesting mantellas that I don't think were properly appreciated at the time they were coming in. Um, so that's, yeah, really unfortunate. Yeah, I'm always curious about species that might have come and gone throughout the early part of the hobby that people may never see again or may have. I mean, there's so many variables to determine what constitutes, you know, a lost locale or, or even a lost species. It'd be interesting to, right. to to go back and see what was available. And you're right; I think it would be definitely more appreciated now if we knew what we had then and took better care of it. Well, yeah, there just wasn't the there wasn't the community of the amount of people seriously keeping stuff. It was you know up in Canada back then there were only a handful of us that were seriously interested. And it's 
it blows my mind now how, how much is growing up here in Canada. Um, I think things would be different if we had access to stuff like that now, but, but back then they would just, I think a lot of the importers almost bring them in as an afterthought with the chameleons and the Europlatus and, and, you know, there's a few frogs too. And, um, yeah, it was, it's kind of definitely wasn't the focal point of the imports coming in at the time anyway. So what led you to start understory? What, how did that begin? What was the goal and what challenges did you face around the, you know, from the very beginning? Like, tell us the story of understory. Well, I'm not sure. I guess I was breeding frogs at, towards the end of high school and uh, starting to sell them um, with the idea that, uh, you know, I probably have to sell them off when I went away to university. I never, you know, what I, I guess in my heart, I wanted to, to make a go of breeding frogs as a living, but it just seemed kind of like a crazy idea and wasn't something you could exactly tell your girlfriend's parents you, you dreamt of doing it, have a better career lined up than that because it was fairly crazy. Um, but I kept, I was able to, um, you know, keep the collection. My parents took care of the collection while I was off at university. My mom sort of retired from supply teaching then. And, uh, so she sort of took care of my small collection then. And, um, I'd come home on weekends and ship stuff off or, so it sort of grew from there. Um, and then I started, you know, breeding enough stuff that I could not dream of selling it into Canada. So I had to learn how to export. So I started exporting first to the States and that was, that was a real learning curve getting my, you know, my first U S fish and wildlife import export license. And then, then finding out I needed a designated port exception permit to, to cross them at Buffalo and, Niagara Falls and then or Windsor Detroit so that was another permit I needed every year and then there's the the uh, daunting uh, feat of you know hand carrying them across and meeting with the fish and wildlife inspector and having him go through everything and uh, and then finally clearing customs and then you know shipping them off from Buffalo um, I used to ship off from Aaron Hanzik's place uh, for for many years so that was probably that was a big challenge like getting actually getting in touch with someone from fish and wildlife that answer my questions and putting me in touch with the right you know, permitting office so I could apply for and get the appropriate permits um, so that I could export the frogs. Um, and then obviously in, in the, from the Canadian getting CITES, then I had to track down, you know, original documents and call up the pet shops and the importers and, and beg them to dig out the old CITES permits and stuff so that I could prove that, you know, the animals were obtained legally and uh, so that they would issue me the export permits for the frogs too. So then with, with exporting, then, you know, it started to, it started to take off and I, you know, I was started to make enough money that I could, you know, start paying for my school and, and all that. So it started to seem with, with the global market potential, then, then it might actually be, be possible. And at that time too, I was lucky enough to get some contacts in Japan that would, would buy volumes of stuff like Dendrobates Azurias for, for really good money at the time. So that, that's kind of what catapulted it and made it seem like, you know, maybe there's, there is something to this. So, so I stuck with it. When you went to university, what was your, what was your, when was this always your career goal or were you going for, for like a more, uh, we'll just say conventional career path? Well, I never really had one. I, I did as a, I was a bad student. Um, I was, I'm a very hard worker, but only on something that interests me. So I studied my, my major in university, or I, I guess I never declared a major. I had under, I'm not sure what I, I graduated from Guelph with a general BA. So my focal point was history. Um, so that, that was my field of study. I didn't have the, 
I guess the work ethic to stick it out in biology because my only interest in biology was hoping to get a field season and going down to the rainforest. Um, but uh, I was able to get a field season whenever I wanted through breeding frogs. So, yeah, I told people my intention was going to teacher's college, but I never had the grades to get in in Canada. I never applied to because by the time I was done school, I was far enough along and in the frog business that I knew that, that if I stuck with it, I could make a go of it. But you did end up doing or having some involvement in academia, right? I mean, you were facilitated some research in, in Peru that led to a species being named after you, right? Yeah, I, I worked a lot. I was fortunate enough to get to know Evan Toomey and Jason Brown from the, the Kyle Summers lab down, you know, in around 2006, seven, five, six, seven, eight. So we were, you know, being all the same age and the same interest, we all got along well and we collaborated. We traveled a lot together at that time while they were they were doing their graduate and their doctoral studies so um yeah when whenever we would you know turn up something new we would give them the locality of it and they would they would determine whether it was a species so they did the real science my involvement with with those papers and and discovery is more of just just giving the field data because i was you know pretty active in the field field then and uh, with manuel and uh so yeah that's that's kind of my involvement some observations from the field and uh, and just sort of funneling them any anything i felt was interesting that i had found that i would make them aware of it and they could do the actual science behind determining if it was something novel or another color morph or, or whatever and then they they for years worked too on uh studied the imitators on on the property we own at chizuda too so um so i guess that i guess that's kind of interesting that tidbit <laughs> but so Amariga pepperi is named after you. What was the story of this specific frog? Like, I mean, number one, having a frog named after you is, is awesome. And I, had, I had Kyle Summers on maybe about a year ago, and I was like, you have a frog named after you? He goes, yeah. I was like, that's so cool. <laughs> like, yeah. And he was so humble about it, too. I'm like, that's awesome. Like, how, did you, how did that happen? I mean, how did you get a species named after you, like that one specifically? Well, Kyle, Kyle's got a cooler one than me, but... Um... No, so the summer or the, the uh, not, not summer side. The uh, what became Amarega pepperi was just we were just traveling uh, late in two thousand, I think two thousand five. We were, and at this point there hadn't been a lot of or anyone really looking south of Terrapoto too far because you know all the guidebooks. This was at the end of the narco stuff, and there was I think it had been done largely for years, but there was still the you know the the stink of it in the air or, or well, the, you know, the farmers, the travel guides advise everyone not to go south from Terrapoto. And, and slowly we worked our way. Um, we were working our way south one, one town after another and everything was seemed safe and there, there wasn't any issues. And then, uh, so we just kept working. It was there, you go through a fairly dry patch until you get, you know, south of Terrapoto till you get to Campania. So there's not really poison frogs. And then once you get to Campania, you can, you start seeing, uh, the first pepperi populations, which wasn't the first one that we we ended up finding, so we were down near near Schumanza, and uh, there's just a creek by the road, and the, the car was making a weird noise. So Cesar was trying to figure out what was going on with the car, and I we hiked up to the creek, and uh, there's a dead dog, and hopping around the dead dog was these strange orange-looking frogs that. You know, once we once we kept caught them, we thought though they're just a this is actually just a really nice probably Amarega bassari. So, um, and we didn't didn't think too much of it. It just seemed like a logical range extension of Amarega bassari. 
And then further south, we found even brighter orange ones. And then a little later on, further south, almost to Tokachi, they're almost red. Um, and yeah, so I didn't, we never thought anything of it. We just assumed it was, you know, a bass or a range extension because there's, there's not much of a disconnect geographically between the two species. Maybe, well, I'm not sure, I shouldn't speak without having the facts, but I'd say about 60 kilometers of a gap. So it, it seemed to me like a logical natural range extension along the, you know, along, essentially along the west western foothills of the Corriere Azul. Um, and then it wasn't until later when we were with Evan Toomey look, checking these things out that he immediately noticed a difference in the call, which I never, I'm terrible audibly like that. I don't, but Evan was in, incredible in his ability to hear something in the field, say the call is way different, but I still don't hear it. Um, so that's what keyed Evan in, and then they they sequenced them and and then they, uh, I guess they described them, I think around 2008 or nine in the paper, where they also described Demarega Yoshina and uh, Ignipatis, which are from out in eastern Peru near Cantamana. So this was all done through audio calls? That was how they determined it was a new species? Well, that's that's what, I think that's what keyed Evan in. I never had a, an inkling that it might be something new. I never never crossed my mind. I assumed it was a bastori. Um, and, uh, but Evan... That's what drew his attention to it. Evan and Jason both realized, and then they recorded the call too and compared them, and they're quite distinct from Bassari. And then when they sequenced the, um, some toes or whatever of the of the Pepperi, then they they determined it was a distinct species from Bassari. That's fascinating, and, and I mean it makes sense. I, I had a conversation with someone I can't remember who it was, and I said, "Why why do you study frogs as opposed to say salamanders?" And then this person said, "Well, frogs make a lot of noise." And that, that makes them easier to find. I was like, oh, that's, that's kind of a good point. I didn't think of it that way. But that that's wild. And especially being able to distinguish that in an area that is going to have lots of background noise. You're going to have birds. You're going to have other frogs, insects, and whatnot. That's that's wild that they were able to, to distinguish that, you know, just on the spot. Yeah. Like Evan and Jason, are, I think, they don't get enough credit for, you know, they're two of the probably the best field biologists, the field herpetologists to come out in in many, many years. And I don't I don't know that there'll be two people that can quite match their their efforts and their passion and their enthusiasm and, and what they're able to accomplish and the amount of species they described. And all this was I don't think people realize all of this was secondary to their peripheral to their actual what they were down there researching. They spent every spare minute they could chasing these passion projects. Um and not not so much their own research projects. This was all done in their spare time on their weekends. They would fly around or drive around wherever they could looking for new stuff. And all this while they're doing their, you know, their masters and their doctorates. So it's, I don't think they get enough credit for the amount of work they did outside of their, you know, their PhDs. Yeah. I've read some of the research. It was very, it was very, they wrote a couple of books too, I believe, right. Which are available for, I mean, there's plenty of research papers, but there's also, I think a book or two out that I guess the average person could get a hold of. There's the monograph, yeah, that on the Renito Maya. That's and I think I'm not sure what Jason did with Amarig. I'm long since not kept up with with the science end of it too much. But uh, yeah, the big one I think was the Renito Maya revision, which came out many several years ago now, where they reworked the entire you know group of Renito Maya, which is you know loaded with amazing pictures of stuff that a lot of you know most maybe many hobbies probably haven't seen pictures of if they haven't haven't looked through the monograph. Have you ever seen anything out in the field that was a complete mystery, like anything that was aberrant that you couldn't identify, like ever run into anything like that? Yeah, the, well, I always assumed 
them as something like, uh, you know, when we saw Benedicta for the first time, we just immediately, what we thought it was just a fantastic form of Fantastica. Um, and there, there's still a, there's a frog from out near, near Sisa, um, which is probably just another color form of Cryptophyllobates or Hylox alices or Aventris. Um, but it's kind of distinct, but it's one of those super cryptic frogs where you don't find when you're looking for it, but it'll jump in front of you if you're not paying attention or looking for something else. So there's been a few things like that, but not, not many that I would think. Yeah, I guess I've, I've never found one that's jumped out to me and say that's got to be a new species. It's always been, that's probably just a color morph of this or that. So, And I don't know really how many new species are actually out there at this point. I think there's, you know, plenty of, you know, untold number of new color morphs and populations. But as far as new species, I'm not, I'm not really sure. I'm always intrigued by that type of stuff. Like, like I mentioned earlier about species that might have come into the trade and then just disappeared without any real legacy of them even being here i don't know stuff like that always kind of just arouses my my curiosity of kind of seeing something that uh nobody else has ever laid eyes on or will again but uh, yeah that's yeah. i share that with you for sure my, like what i what always fascinates me is um like what was you know what would be in places that have been deforested you know central ideal what would have been i think historically important areas for for poison for us like the terrible valley be one it's been defore- deforested for hundreds of years now, like what would have been there as far, you know, could there have been, you know, all there seems to be so much morphological stuff radiating out of the Terrapoto Valley, like what was actually in the Terrapoto Valley. Um, you know, that kind of question's always fascinated me. Like what have we, what have we lost long before anyone was actually paying attention to poison frogs? Um, kind of interesting to ponder. Oh, absolutely. And Peru is a pretty unique place because there's a lot of, and I'm just going to kind of speak in general terms, and you're free to elaborate or get specific, but in terms of the numbers of different regions and locales associated with those regions, and especially with Ratatomea and, and other species like Peru, Peru seems at least to me to be fairly unique when it comes to that type of um, these unique locales with these, uh, excuse me, uh, these unique geographic locales along with the actual, you know, the frog locales. I mean, is there anything that's really unique about Peru that attracted you to Peru as opposed to, say, Panama or Brazil or Colombia or any of those other places? Why, why focus on Peru? Well, it wasn't – that wasn't an intentional choice on my part. Um, if I had to have chosen any place to work back then, it probably would have been Costa Rica because my, my favorite species was and still is Ophaga granulifera. Um, but um, I just so happened to, I got an email from – you know, many years ago from a guy named Manuel in Peru wanting to, you know, wanting to start a frog project and was looking for a collaborator and, he, you know, he didn't. So that, that's kind of how it got started. And it, luckily enough, it worked out that way. Um, so it wasn't ever my intention to go start anything in Peru, but, um, you know, Manuel, he was able to get it started. And, you know, so working with him, I, I stayed involved because we were able to get, you know, get stuff um, into into the trade legally through through his efforts largely in peru so that's why you know that's why i started and then i guess the first time i went to peru to meet manuel i mean i fell in love with the country immediately like it was 
you know, landing and we met Manuel the first time and he came to meet us in Lima and then we flew immediately to Iquitos and I'll never forget landing in, in Iquitos for the first time. And, you know, the, just walking off the plane, there was, you know, broke down planes and broke down helicopters all over the runway and there's just a wall of humidity. And then getting in the, getting into the city and the motocars was, you know, it was absolute chaos. And I just loved it. It just seemed finally like neotropical. I've been to, I've been to Costa Rica, you know, several times before I went to Peru and, you know, I love the country, but it never seemed wild enough to me. It didn't kind of didn't scratch that itch for adventure like I thought Peru could. Like Peru just seemed like uh, some sort of controlled chaos that I was strangely comfortable with. So I, I loved it from, you know, the first moment I stepped off a plane in the Quitos and I knew that, you know, that was a place I'd like to spend as much time as I could. So what was the operation that happened in Peru with Manuel? How did that start and what did that ultimately become well so well to go back i guess so how it all started was man well he was in university and you know so we we're the same age which we we didn't realize i didn't know anything about him or him about me really other than he knew that i was selling frogs so so he contacted me wanting to to sell me i think he wanted to sell reticulata and um and he had what he was calling Sirensis. Um, so Manuel at the time was putting himself through school by selling uh, dried insect specimens that he would catch and he could export them through the program they called the, the Calendaria de Casa. So essentially a quota system where you could you could catch and export insects. And this the system still exists for many species of, of dried insects for the you know the insect collectors and the artisan trade and, and craft makers and stuff. Um, so that's what he was doing at the time and and he assumed that um, that he would be able to just sell the frogs too he assumed they'd be on the calendar or the casar they'd be something similar so he offered me these species and um i said well yeah i mean i 100 be interested but can you can you actually export them to me legally and he's like well i assume so i export these insects no problem and he's like you know send me he quoted me the shipping price through dhl and um and i honestly wasn't sure how that would go but it was cheap enough so i i wired him the money for it and he said you know let me look into it and uh and anyway, he got back to me within a couple of days, and he's like, I, you know, send me your your Western Union uh, your address. I have to send your money back." He's like, "I can't, I can't actually ship you these frogs. There's this, there's this thing called CITES and and this and that." And he's like, "I thought I could send them like my insects, but I can't do it. So I'll send you your money back." And I, and it was, I don't know, maybe sixty or eighty bucks. And I said, "Well, just, you know, keep the money, but is it, you know, maybe look into. Is there any way we can we can do something to get get these animals out legally?" And uh, he said, and this is all again translating through Google Translate, which is not near what it was uh, or what it is now before I spoke Spanish. Um, he didn't speak any English at the time either. So anyway, he got back to me in a couple weeks with a really long email, which essentially outlined the, uh, the Zucreate Aero program and the steps involved and more or less the costs involved. And, and I never understood a lot of it other than it was going to cost some money. But it, you know, but it could be done. You could set up a breeding facility and and get, you know, breed them and then export the offspring theoretically. So, so I decided to to fund that, and uh, and then you know probably six months after I started, you know, he started getting to work on that. That's when I went down the first time to to see it and then see what he had built. And then after that, from that point, it was a good three years, I think, till we. We were able to finally export. 
And you built a facility down there or like what was like what was the physical presence in Peru that you created so that you could breed these frogs? So the initially we had permits, the first two permits that came through to work with for that Manuel was able to get was for Renita Maya reticulata. Well, these are they, at that time they're called Dendrobates reticulata and Dendrobates ventromaculata, which is now the the Amazonica. So those are the two species uh, in the Iquitos region. Um, and so we had bought uh, 22 acres of forest there, and we he had set up the original zoo creator was there because it was just focused on those two species. So he built probably three meter by meter and a half by say a meter and a half tall pens and filled them with bromeliads and put a couple pairs. He built, I think he had six or eight of these. And then he put probably two or three pairs of each in these pens and bred them that way. Um, so it was very simple, just right inside their environment. So they, they didn't really know any better. Um, and so that was the original and that was fine for those two species, but, when we got further along with permits for other species, we knew we had to build inside the city. And that's, that's when everything really changed. Like once we got permits for the Fantastica and the Flavoitata and the other Renia and some of the Amarega, then we bought a lot in the city and we built, you know, a proper building with, with air conditioning and, you know, proper frog rooms, built glass aquariums and, you know, with climate control. And, and then we also built some pens outside in, in the yard outside in Iquitos, but this is all again, a wall, a walled area. So, so that was the original infrastructure. I, once we moved past the first two species, then we, we moved everything into Iquitos and then it became more of what people know as a, you know, a frog facility, like, you know, sliding glass front tanks, kind of Euro style stuff inside with air conditioning and all that. Because obviously you need air conditioning. Ketos is unbelievably hot at times. So you definitely need the AC to, to bring the temperatures down into the, the mid to high seventies. That was going to be another question I had was, I mean, from, I mean, I've never been to Peru, so I'm just going off of what other people have told me, but certain regions in Peru and other countries as well have kind of very, very unique biomes where there might be a weather pattern that's unique to a certain small little area that's not in other parts of the country, which I'm sure happens everywhere. Like Madagascar, I guess, is a good example of that on a bigger scale. But how was it getting frogs from one area of Peru and moving them to where your you know your urban facility was? Like, is that why you built this climate-controlled room to kind of have better control over the weather because it was different, or is or was it completely the same in the two places? Well, no, it's not so much that it was the, it was just like in Iquitos, it often gets to 40 degrees Celsius. So if you're inside a building at, with lights and stuff, then you're, you're going to be cooking your animals. Like, and even though the frogs seem to be, because it's even though like when you're outside of the forest, like you you got no shade, you got nothing. The sun is just beats down on these concrete buildings and it's sweltering hot without AC. So yeah, that's, that's why we built it just because any frog, even the Iquitos ones, they wouldn't have lasted in, in terrariums without without air conditioning um, because it just, it would get too hot inside, especially inside a glass, you know, essentially a sealed up glass tank with lights on top of it. So, so it's just to bring it down to the conditions that we were used to in Canada too. So just um, that's, that's the main thing is just like Iquitos is, is an extremely hot city. Um, you know, it's the, that it's right on the Amazon. It's probably one of the hottest places in Peru. It's, uh, it's uh, yeah, it's sweltering, I guess to, to put it any other way. I bet I'm I'm picturing it now and it's, it's like it's the middle of summer here and I'm dying at like 85 degrees and like 
70% humidity. I can only imagine what it must have been like in Peru. Yeah, it must like, have been really uncomfortable. Imagine 100 degrees and 300% humidity, and that's that can be a keto sometimes. It's it's so thick, it's hard to breathe some days. And then it's uh, it's a different a different kind of heat in the ketos. It's, Terrapoto has nothing on the ketos heat-wise. So. Yeah, yeah, that's what I meant about just different regions in the country. That I mean, Peru is a fairly large country, but I, I think... Massive country. Yeah, I think, you know, there's a lot of us outside of that area... I guess kind of erroneously think that every spot in South America is constantly going to be hot and humid. And there's so many other little miniature biomes there that exist that I feel like a lot of people don't, don't necessarily realize. And I've, I've made that mistake plenty of times myself, despite people telling me the contrary. Yeah. Yeah. And the, and the temperatures in one spot to another can, in the same place. I mean, there can be such a variation too. It can be so cold at nights in some spots and so hot in the day and, so they, you know, there's, there's such fluctuations and, and, uh, yeah, I mean, the, you get up in elevation, just a little bit and the temperature can change a lot too. So. so which, which species are you working with now and what ratio of those come out of Peru versus what you have in, what you breed in Canada? Well, we're not, oh, the, I mean, the Peruvian stuff is, uh, that's, I think that's kind of what we're known for as, as a company understory, but I mean, I wouldn't exist if I was dependent on selling Renito Maya because I think um, like our understory is always and everything in Peru was funded through me breeding all the other stuff, the other the Surinamese species, the Tinctorius, the Leucomelus, the the Aratus morphs. And I used to breed quite a few Pamelio. Um, I used to commercially raise crickets as well. Um, I bred, you know, until recently I bred, you know, hundreds if not thousands of Mantellas every year. So um what peru did for us was i think it made our company interesting internationally so we had something unique with some of the renito maya um that other people didn't have access to or the hobby generally didn't have access to but but the bulk of our our breeding is still um you know i wouldn't i couldn't imagine staying in business if i wasn't raising hundreds and hundreds of denner bays azuras so i think where hobbyists what the hobbyists don't see maybe is that they're focused on there's, there's kind of two frog markets. There's the direct hobby market, and I might be going on a tangent here, but it might make sense when I'm done. And then there's the, the global frog market. And often there's there's no intersection. So there's all these pet shops that will sell frogs, and they'll, a lot of them do a good job with them. But the average person going into a pet shop is not looking for Renita Maya. Because, and most pet shops won't carry Renita Maya because they're a little timid or they're a little more fragile or they're smaller, but they want azurias they want the different tinctories they want the phyllobabies the big showy species and a lot of people that buy the frogs in, in pet stores all over the world might never even connect with someone in the hobby they just want one terrarium in their living room or maybe two so they don't become what we consider hobbyists you know they don't get to the level of a frog room or anything like that so then the the renita maya like where they fit into the the whole industry of the hobby is mainly it's a hobbyist animal it's a really a, kind of a specialty thing that i don't think will ever cross over into the mainstream onto the level just because they are smaller they are a little more reclusive and can be a little more delicate so i think all the renita maya market and a lot of the amarega market it's consumed hobbyist to hobbyist and us being in canada where there's still compared to the united states a very small hobby i mean it's growing phenomenally but it's it's you know it's a fraction a mere fraction of what it is in the united states let alone europe or japan so and us being in canada like we're we're very far removed from all the the huge hobby market like in the United States and Europe. So, I mean, all the Renita Maya market and, you know, like we, you'd think people would be surprised 
how few Lanita Man we actually sell to the U.S. compared to how many Azuris we'll sell on a shipment. It's, um, and that's and that's understandable in the way that like we only ship to the United States two to maximum four times a year. So no, a lot of hobbies don't want to wait. Like they don't want to wait three months for their frogs when they can buy them from other great breeders in the States like Jared Ruffing or, or whoever that has them kind of on demand. So, so for that reason, I guess we're, my focus has, has been, and you know, my passion is reading a mail. That's my favorite stuff by far. Um, but from a business perspective, what we, what we breed and what we always will be focused on breeding frog wise is, uh, is the larger species that that have an appeal in the, the greater you know pet trade market so your facility that you have in canada how do you have that set up so we have two barns here that we built um they're about 172 by 40 by well 72 that's a footprint 72 by 40 i think or 72 by 36 maybe and then there's another, there's a quarantine wing on that that's got four independent quarantine rooms that all have their own AC and water and all that so that uh, when we do import that everything can stay in quarantine for a long time. But we used to, you know, back when we're at our peak years ago, we'd often have four rooms in quarantine running, but now I I hate to have even more than one room in there running. Uh, so yeah, it's, it's all set up inside these, these insulated barns. So the other barn now is all just plants so i have one for frogs and one for plants so that's the other part of our business that's grown exponentially is the terrarium plants and where i think there's the most potential for growth going forward is is in that market do you think that the plant market it totally eclipses the frog market because i've heard that from other people as well that like the the plant community is bar none like gigantic i mean do you have that same impression as well so what I foresee happening, yeah, is at some point the plants, the terrarium plants will eclipse the the frog sales. I think the plants, just by the sheer size and the, and the depth of diversity in plants, I think it, it it's a far larger market than, than frogs. But I think both will grow kind of at the same, same time as well. I think you'll see a lot of people come into the frog market as more plant people start keeping terrariums. I think they're naturally inclined or you know, they naturally, it naturally appeals them the idea of, to many of them, at least the idea of keeping frogs. And now in Canada, the, uh, the big expo is in Ontario. They have a plant expo attached to them. So that's, you see a huge amount of overlap now with that. So it's, it's really interesting to see. Which species of plants are your big sellers or, well, let's, let me, two questions. Which ones are your most common sellers and which ones are your, I guess, like hobbyist sellers that go to people who are really, really specialized interests? Well, we still like it, it's yeah. So like, there's people that just start setting up terrarium. They want the hardier stuff. Like smaller, smaller phylodendrons are fantastic. Uh, certain begonias, um, you know, even like I, it's unbelievable the amount of like the ficus panama we can sell and different selaginelles and stuff. Kind of like your starter plants are great. And then people invariably, you know, they get they do well with that. Then they want to as they grow in the hobby. There's a lot of demand for smaller, you know, smaller ferns or the more obscure more obscure stuff but my favorite things are you know like the lap of the loss and fern really obscure ferns or the cochlidiums or the you know the strange ferns and stuff like that but there's you know then there's whole groups of people that like the melastomes and um you know the, the stuff that i don't have hardly any depth of diversity in but the, you know the, the potential for growth is is almost unfathomable and it's just a matter of how much time do i have and and where my interests lie but 
So I like, you know, the small aeroids and I like the begonias and I like the, the peperomia. And I like the, especially those, you know, the smaller elaphoblossoms and, um, you know, asplenium and, you know, the really suitable terrarium ferns that, you know, have mature frond length at under a couple inches. And there's, there's, who knows, it's, it's amazing that the diversity of what's, what's out there for that and the potential for that. And I think what's interesting is that you can have theoretically in it you know, a relatively small terrarium, 50 to 100 species of plants, as well as a nice colony of frogs. So. Yeah, it's, I, I mean, my, my plant game is pretty weak. I'll, I'll admit that. I, I have I have a very, very limited um, palate when it comes to plants. I, 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 I bought a, um, a Monstero recently, and that was really the extent of my, um, my venture into anything beyond the, the basic stuff, but... I know people are going to laugh at me, but that's fine. Um, you mentioned something earlier that interested me that I didn't know about you. You said you you farmed crickets commercially. Yeah, well, that's how I before like uh, yeah, there that was my my first really go at making money at this was actually crickets, and I hated every minute of it. But yeah, we did a. I can't remember how many we'd wholesale a week. Uh, I think about fifty thousand a week. It wasn't a huge scale, but it, you know enough money to to keep things going back then and uh, just, you know, keep money coming in steadily. And then any frog money or whatever I made selling frogs was on top of that. So yeah, I did, I did whatever I, you know, I could do within the industry to, to make ends meet. How did you manage that? Cause from what I've heard, it's, it's pretty horrific and really dirty work. Well, I, how, did, how did you do that? Well, a lot of work. Like I kept them, you know, we kept them clean as this is all still when I was at my parents' house. I, had the, probably the most understanding parents on the world. So we, we took part of their basement and superheated. Um, and we raised them in bins, like floor to ceiling shelving with bins. So you, as long as you, like, it wasn't, it never got gross because, uh, we kept them clean. Like you got to change your water over and you got to change your bins over and you got to try and keep ahead of the, the mite cycle too. So if you change your bins within, you know, I, f- I figure, I think if I remember right, it was like about every 11 days, between 10 and 12 days, if you get your bins switched over, then you can stay ahead of all the mites and stuff and, and everything stays kind of clean. And so it wasn't overly stinky, but it was kind of hot and gross and it's just a pain in the ass. And, it, you know, it's unrewarding work. It's not like working with frogs where there's a, you know, like I seeing a cricket hatch pales and on the level of seeing a frog metamorphose. Why do they have to be kept so hot? What What part does that play in the equation? I don't know whether they, I think keeping them hot and dry seems to keep, uh, keep it from getting soggy inside the bins and feeds up the, uh, the larval stage. I think your crickets hatch in like eight or 10 days or something. If it kept warm enough. So we'd always on the very top shelf. I remember always stacking the, the bins of, uh, you know, the vermiculite with the cricket eggs and all that. So it's been years. I'll never raise crickets again. That's, that's the reason I don't keep any tree frogs anymore. Uh, just because I, I hate dealing with crickets, so I've, I've had, I've had my fill of crickets. Yeah, I'm just I'm curious because I've I've always heard how horrible it is, and I keep I usually buy crickets anywhere from like 500 to a thousand, just from my, my phyllobates and some other yeah. odds and ends. Because it's it, with phyllobates and the large, well, the larger tinctorists won't actually eat them. It's really just the phyllobates and the couple of other odds and end frogs I have, but having enough fruit flies for a, a big phyllobates is very, very different from having it for like a small ranitomea or, or a little pamilio. So I, I kind of have to buy all these crickets. But after like 
maybe about 500 or 1,000 lasts me about maybe three weeks total. And then by yeah. the time I'm ready to, to empty it out, there's so much frass in there. How did you deal with the frass? Like, how did you separate the live crickets from the frass? Because when I'm in there doing it with, uh, it's a mess. Yeah, we did buckets with strainers. So we dumped the bins in. So we'd have one bucket set inside a big bin. And the bucket, the smaller bucket would have a strainer on top. So all the, the shit would go, excuse me, all the frass would go, <laughs> sorry, inside the inside the bucket through the strainer and the crickets would stay on top and crawl down into the bigger bin and that would be their new bin. So that, that's how we did it. Makes sense. It's just, I don't know, man, thinking about it just, oh, it, was awful. it skeeves like, me. It's gross. Yeah. I can't imagine like these huge farms in the States and stuff that ship out millions and millions and millions a week. I don't know how they manage it, but I'm sure they got a better system than we came up with, but I, I still but then I've seen like Waikiri's facility for crickets in, in Ecuador and it's, it's so clean and tidy and not gross. So, um, so it's just, if you have the right, I think the right guy for it and the right staff and the right, the right routine, you can keep on top of the nasty. But if you slack even for a week, like you're going to have, I think problems that you just will compound into a bigger problem and then eventually overwhelmed with, with problems. So. Yeah, it doesn't seem to be particularly rewarding work. Was it domestic crickets or banded crickets that you were breeding? It was the the ones that were the common ones in the hobby, the brown ones, maybe that's the domestic ones, uh the before the banded. So this is before the virus came and wiped out all the what the what I call the, just the pet trade, the little beigey brown typical pet trade cricket. Um and then uh, yeah, and then like we had the I used to breed crickets again. Then long after I did commercial, we have a really small colony just for. Our but then eventually, when I when I moved to the new facility, we had we lost our cricket colony to the virus, and then that's kind of when I said, you know, enough enough of this. I'll buy what I need, three frogs, and and uh, you know, time saved is money earned, kind of thing. So, and then eventually stopped working with tree frogs altogether. Not too long after that, at that point in time, too. So now I don't don't need crickets other than. You know, occasionally I will buy a couple thousand smaller ones for the file babies or just to, just to mix it up a bit, but nothing, nothing significant. And as far as feeding all your breeding stock, well, I mean, how many frogs would you estimate that you have in your, your breeding stock now? Right now, I, ah, uh, that's a good question. Not, nothing like I used to have. Um, I mean, just give me a second. I'll try and figure out my shelves. I've probably got i want to say 400 to in the in the neighborhood of four to five hundred adult animals if not maybe yeah that, that seems about right and then we've got you know at any time a few thousand or several thousand froglets from them and how are you feeding that many frogs just predominantly fruit flies so we raise high di and melanogaster and then we raise unbelievable amount of springtails for the uh, Renito Maya. So we have a room at my parents' house still where we keep, it's a cool room. We raise, you know, thousands of colonies of white springtails um, that we, we cycle in and out of use. Um, and that's, that's why we never have a shortage of springtails for, for the Renito Maya. That's kind of the, the linchpin for all the Renito Maya production. And, and the, in the Amarega too, that often come up quite, quite tiny as metamorphs springtails for a bit too. So but yeah, springtails and fruit flies are, staples and then the, the larger species will get supplemented occasionally with uh you know eighth inch or you know slightly larger crickets 
I mean, you have to have a really streamlined operation with that many frogs with your fruit fly production. How many cultures do you make in a week just to feed what you have in-house? Right now, about 120 cultures a week. We used to raise, you know, several times more than that. But now, um, you know, we've we've cut back a lot of stuff with, with COVID and stuff. And now I'm, now I'm at... So yeah, we're about uh, I'd say 100 to 120 a week, and yeah, you're right. If you you can't, it's you know, it's we have a room just for flies, and every you know we do them, set them up on on Wednesday. The cultures are built, and then on Wednesday, sorry, on Monday the cultures are you know the the media is mixed. The cultures are set up. We let them sit two days, and then on Wednesday the flies are added. So we have a consistent. I know exactly when the, the next batch of fresh cultures will. Produce. Cultures always boom about twice, and then we we start throwing them out after the second boom because it keeps the you know mites under control and all that. So. Do you have any recommendations for mite control for someone who might make a lot of cultures uh, at once? Or I know it's that's I, kind of a tricky issue. <laughs> mite, mite paper and diatomaceous earth and all kinds of powders and I like I think eventually if you leave your cultures if you don't throw them out soon enough you're gonna have mites in them. So it's just a matter of even though sometimes they'll you'll get one that'll want to be booming with tiny flies then but eventually you're gonna get mites i think is my opinion you know you eventually if if you don't throw them out fast enough then you're gonna have them swarming with mites so so i try to get rid of them after you know after second boom then we we get rid of the culture because we always have fresh coming so it's kind of unneeded obviously if for whatever reason a generation didn't take then we'd use older ones but we try and just get rid of them after after a couple couple booms and they, then they get, you know then they get replaced with fresher cultures so. yeah, another thing that intrigues me about fruit fly production is sometimes you know like you mentioned you'll have a culture or a, a group of cultures that just for whatever reason crash and fail to thrive and i mean i have the luxury of just going out and buying another couple of cultures and starting over again how do you manage your I, mean, I guess for lack of a better word like the the genetic fitness of your fruit fly colonies like what do you do if you have a you know, a, a big crash or how do you, how do you manage like the health of the stock of the fruit flies so that you have consistent production generation after generation? Well, generally what'll happen here every summer, I'll get a few that'll start flying. Like I'll have contamination from, from touch wood. It hasn't happened yet this year, but I'm sure it will later on this summer. So I'll see a few cultures where they start flying. I think that's just wild flies get in and, uh, you know, are attracted to the stink of all the cultures and will breed through the lids or through the fabric lids or whatever. And then at that point, I'm forced to buy again. You know, then I'll be stuck feeding flying flies in a couple of weeks because I can't not feed anything uh, from a few of the cultures. Uh, then I'll buy a new stock from somebody else and then I'll have fresh genetics. So almost every summer, I'm forced to refresh my genetics of fruit flies anyway, just through um, just through the frustration of of getting flyers in my cultures. So, I mean, my rooms, they're, they're always tapped at the same temperature. So it's not like there's a temperature spike that will cause them to fly. I think it's just wild stuff getting in and, and crossbreeding with the, the, you know, the, the Turkish gliders. I see. What about the, 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 the breeding frogs that you have? Do you ever import new blood from wild frogs to, to supplement your breeding program? Or how do you, because I often hear no. about yeah, I often hear about people bringing in new stuff to supplement bloodlines, but I really don't I don't really know anybody who's ever actually done it per se. So I was just curious what your thoughts are on stuff like that. No, like I mean, I would I would jump at the chance to get wild caught azurias or or some more wild caught tinks, but 
but again, I don't know. I don't know, like uh, stuff like azuria's like it, it, they breed so well that the, the they're so robust, and and I don't. I don't know. I don't know. That's a, a really good question. I don't have a good answer for. Like, I don't. I don't know at what point we're going to need new blood. I think, and I think that's you know where hobbyists need to really, really be focused more on is making sure that each generation lasts as long as possible. Because I don't know, you know, like like there there'll be a time in the future where no one can get anything. I'm sure out of the out of South America. Um, so what we have is going to be what we have, and you know it's important that if, if a frog has the potential to live eight to 12, 15 years, it, we got to squeeze out every year possible so that the next generation can last. And then, and then we might have these, these around, but I think there, there should be, you know, relatively good genetic, like as far as from my, in my way of looking at it, like I'm confident with what I've got that it's going to last my lifetime uh, without having any issues. And then beyond that, I, I don't know when the problems might start to arise. I know I, I mentioned, uh, uh, about I just posted about Brazilian yellowhead finally breeding for me after four years of not. And it was just a tiny three clutch, but then somebody and Troy Goldberg mentioned that he might. He was wondering if it might be a sort of a genetic model bottleneck because he's had trouble or seen heard of troubles with with that morph in the past breeding. So, so I don't know. There, there, we could be starting to see that, but I don't. It could just be my husbandry issues or just bad luck or you know, not every group you get is going to be an epic breeding group either. Um, but yeah, so, so I don't know what the answer is to that, but I think the obvious solution is to manage stuff better. Um, because like I said, like there's, I don't see wildcat Azurius coming in anytime to refresh bloodlines, um, to be generally available. But, um, you know, what, you know, what, what does come in, I guess, you know, what does come in should be, should be preserved maybe a little more, a little more thoroughly. I just wonder because there's so many frogs in the hobby now. I mean, it's, it's increased exponentially. I remember going to expos in the early 2000s and there was maybe one or two vendors that had, I mean, big, big vendors who were huge now having just a single table with maybe a hundred frogs in deli cups. And it really wasn't anything that, I mean, it's most of the stuff that's become fairly common. I'm always just, yeah. just curious about, like you mentioned with, with the long term because how how often can you draw from that genetic well over 10, 15, 20? I mean, are we going to be breeding the same frogs in, in 50 years? I mean, like you mentioned, there might be issues with um, with exports out of South America and whatnot. It's just it's just one of those things I think about. I'm Yeah, well, it's, I mean, it's it's interesting, like, like the, the point you made, but there's so much available now. And I, I think, and that's, that's where I, you know, that's, I guess like it's fascinating to me all the large ophaga and how well people are doing with them. But like, there's honestly more large ophaga in the market than 10 years ago. I even knew existed in the wild. I had never heard of half of these, these morphs. And now people are, are breeding them consistently. It's, it's fascinating to see, but on the, on the other hand, I think that displaces a lot of the other species from the market. Cause they, you know, no one can keep everything that there's such a depth of diverse readily available now um, that no no one person can can maintain it all so i think you know with flashier species like the large fog and, and don't get me wrong the some of the most striking beautiful frogs i've ever seen um and there, there's something 
certainly extremely appealing about them. But, but I think with, with all the influx of that stuff and, and anything new, really, it, it comes, I think something else, some older species or old hobby species is going to pay the price for that is going to get overlooked um, and slowly disappear from the hobby. I think we're at risk of losing probably a lot of species that we once took for granted. They're just going to fall through the cracks and, or just be relegated to, you know, a few breeders collections. And um, so I agree. And I've seen it happen with other hobbies as well. I know with the, the tarantula hobby, cause I also keep tarantulas. I've mm-hmm. seen that happen too, with certain species that were really readily available that were kind of considered almost like trash species. You can't really get anymore. Or there was a taxonomy change or, or a, uh, like certain, like for example, like uh, like I think Sri Lanka, Sri Lanka and India changed a lot of their or started to enforce a lot of their wildlife laws a lot more aggressively. So now there's certain species that can't be transported state to state, and now it's like, well, now what do we do? We've we've kind of lost this thing that we took for granted for so long. Yeah, I think I think yes, yeah, probably any of these niche hobbies is probably the they struggle with the same, you know, the same sort of process or the same same thing. I mean, it's natural to want a new challenge or something new, but it's, I think we got to take stock of what, at what cost that, that comes with, like how many, how many new frogs do we, do we actually need? Um, you know, it seems like there's an endless amount of familial, there's endless amounts of seemingly endless amounts of Rhenia uh, probably who knows how many more Tinctorius are out there, but I guess, you know, do we need, do we need them all? I guess if it's going to come at the cost of something else, if the hobby's not really growing fast, absorb all these new morphs to have them maintained properly then at, at, at what point you know does is it almost self-defeating or something like that anyway just i i often think about think about that too i just think of all the stuff that have come through my hands that that i don't have like radis morphs and uh, and mantella like i don't have any mantella now i sold those off at the start of covid i know i'll never probably never get a good breeding group of mantella viridis again and i you know i really regret selling those and i don't know what you know, I don't know what's happened to them now. Um, so just from my own experience, like I've, I've gone through this very thing. I'm saying we should do a better job against, uh, against allowing, you know, be more aware of it happening. So it'd be interesting to see a day where Lamani becomes really common and Azurius is, uh, is a, a grail frog once again. Yeah. And you never know, like someone sounds crazy to say, but it, it could happen. Like, um it's it's amazing how fast you know all it takes is you know one or two breeders can fill a market with a species and all it takes one or two of that breeders key animals to die or to escape or, or to stop producing until all of a sudden you, something becomes scarce like um it's, it's interesting to see um and not necessarily in a good way of interesting but it, it certainly certainly happens for sure more than more than it should maybe what percentage of the u.s is is your market because we we do have a lot of fairly large breeders here in the u.s and i know the i mean for, i always everybody in canada i know it's always like the same 10 people and I, I know the hobby isn't huge up there like it is down here i think i don't know if just we have a lot larger population but how much of your stuff ends up in the u.s whether it's from peru or, or directly from canada so are you talking like overall sales However, yeah, whether it's something specialized like Ranatomea or general sales yeah. or whatever. I would say not even 10%. Like, yeah, I'd say probably right around 10, 8 to 10% if I if I got the numbers out. Like, it's it's small. Like, you know, this last shipment, for example, we just sent one down on, 
when I meet Tim on on Monday or Tuesday. I can't remember, but this week our, our most recent shipment went down, and it was so I say it was about roughly two hundred, just over two hundred frogs, and just, it might be interesting for some people. Maybe a good more than two thirds of those were between Aratus, Tinctorius, and Phyllobates. And the bulk of those sales were actually to some institutions. Um, so the few Renitomea were dispersed to a handful of hobbyists, but it was a really small percentage. So, and like, it's just, again, it goes back to what I said. Like, I, I can't export. It's too much paperwork. The you know the turnover time for paperwork and all the processing, getting them across the border, setting up the inspection with U.S. Fish and Wildlife. You know the you know the customs inspection. You know, and then I have to get the CITES paperwork from Canada. You know, all that paperwork. You can't do it on a scale that you can, so you, you know, I can't be exporting every week or every month. I think, you know, every, I only have the stomach. We only have the time to do the paperwork, maybe three times a year. Maybe we can squeeze out four shipments next year if, if there's enough demand. But, uh, so like, like in the meantime, between shipments, like, I think Jerry Ruffin is such a well-known, great Renita Mayer breeder, for example. Like he, he'll sell way more Renita Mayer in the States than I could ever dream of just because he's right there. He's got excellent animals. So why not buy from Jared? Why wait, you know, from a hobbyist perspective, why wait, you know, two, three, four months for, for an understory shipment? I just can't compete um, with the direct market that's, that's already available from, from all the, the network of breeders that are in the States. So for that reason, it's, even though we're geographically close to the U.S., it's a very small percentage of our sales. Like we I said, I'm surprised the, the volume of frauds we're, we're selling in Canada. And then, and our biggest market is, is right now. And it has been probably for, for years is Japan. Yeah. That was going to be my next question is, I don't, I mean, I don't know if you've ever been there or direct observation or what, but what is the hobby like in Japan? How much of an interest did the Japanese have in dart frogs? They have a huge interest, uh, but I think it's, again, it's becoming more from what I can tell. I've never been, I'd love to go. Um, but I think there's, serious you know there's not a lot of space from what the average house i don't think that there's a lot of people with frog rooms but i think there's a lot of people keeping one or two terrariums like a lot so like we sell you know we sell the shops in japan um regularly we ship to you know by far most of our exports go to japan and we also sell to you know into south korea quite a few animals and that's through a you know network of hobbyists that get together in group order and we'll ship to taiwan a couple times a year um and we used to ship you know pre-covid to a lot more a lot more countries more or less irregularly but now it's hard to get uh the, the connections have come back for freight so it's logistically it's much more difficult to export than it used to be um so yeah we've always had been a very international international business so but it's it's nice with you know to see it growing in canada because my you know going forward one of my biggest concerns is you know if one airline like stops taking live cargo that could bottleneck all of our ability to export or almost cripple it so um you know we're, it's really it's always a kind of one of those things that you, you worry about like what you know the what ifs so that's again why i'm largely focused on plants too because our plant exports um you know we can send them dhl we can send them fedex and you know if they get there on time great if it's a three-day delay fine we've had boxes held up for a couple weeks and and the vast majority of the plants do so it's a a much more forgiving industry to be involved in than, than frogs, which are, I mean, frogs are extremely time sensitive. Um, so, I mean, they, they miss, they miss a connection, you know, in the United States or whatever, and they get the next day, they're usually fine. But if, if I have a box transferred through Frankfurt that misses a connection and it's got to go to Indonesia, it might be three days till the next flight it can get on. And then you have real trouble. So That's got to be nerve wracking. 
it's not getting any any more fun. Yeah, it's always. I mean, hundreds and hundreds of times I, I go to the airport and drop off a shipment, but it's always stressful because, like, once you you know, once you get the once they give you the acceptance paperwork from say Air Canada or whatever airline I'm using, you get you know you get the accept you clear them through customs, you get the acceptance from the airline. It's totally out of your hands, and there's a million things that can go wrong. Um, and you've you know you've entrusted all these months of work and all these animals into the hands of someone that may or may not care what they're doing or you know or a simple mistake and and everything can go wrong. So yeah, it seems like more of a it, it just seems like so much work to to go through. I can't imagine why anybody would. I mean, I understand it's 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 a business. But I can't imagine like, like I would never want to do that. I would never have the, the the time or the patience to fill out all that paperwork and then just cast caution to the wind with some airline that God knows what they're doing. Well, we pack a we pack for to account for almost any error possible, but still, you can only do so much. And I mean, the paperwork because we've been doing it for so long, it's like it gets more complicated every year. There's another step, and there's Transport Canada's got all like these security requirements and, and stuff i've had to you know i had police record checks and all this stuff to to be able to drop off my own shipments and the broker my own stuff and so that every year there's another layer added but because we've been doing it so long uh, it's just it's okay it's one more one more layer added to this onion rather than peeling the onion making the onion bigger but i can imagine starting now and trying to to wade through all of this the steps it'd be unbelievably cumbersome but because we've been involved with it for so long it's just okay there's another Another headache, but what's what's another headache on top of all the headaches we're already used to? So, I often wonder about how legislation and enforcement has gotten a lot more aggressive. We'll say in the past, especially in the past ten years. I don't know how it affects you all up in Canada, but here in the U.S., things have been coming to a head. Not so much with frogs per se, because they don't bring the same problems as certain other species, you know, invasive species and whatnot. And yeah, uh, it just seems to me like it almost seems purposeful that the process is becoming so convoluted that it's making it, you're not going to want to do it even well, though it's legal. The, yeah. Yeah. I think that's, that's the way these things are, are coming through. Like some of the, the new, even the new transport regulations here, like they're, they were written for companies like FedEx for, massive freight companies and there was no no nuance for no consideration that there might be a company that only has one person or two people so like there without getting into all it's completely ridiculous that i'm like understory even falls under this because i have to be this person this person this person this person this person in the company you know my mom does all the accounting stuff is this person this person we're each on these transport canada we're fulfilling multiple roles that you know just just to check all the boxes in this and it makes no sense like it makes sense maybe if, if i had drivers running my stuff to the airport you know a fleet of drivers every day then yeah they should have security checks and all that and stuff and you know but you know transport canada comes they screen they watch us pack boxes about once a year they'll do surprise meetings to make sure that we have a secure packing area and all that it's just it's it's crazy uh so we have to have one room now that I can't. This totally wastes the space, but that's my secure cargo area where I have to pack all my shipments, and then it's got a different lock and all that. And then I have to report to them where the locks are kept. And it's amazing, and I don't think it does a bit of good in in the terms of making the world safe. But I, all this legislation, I think, what invariably it's going to do is is make it so that no one wants to do it. And so rather than outright making stuff illegal, they make it impossible. Or maybe, you know, that's kind of how I feel about some of this stuff. 
I, I agree 100%. I feel like, I mean, people here in the US, and especially younger hobbyists who haven't had as much time in this universe and haven't really seen how it's kind of come and gone over the past 25, 30 years. God, I feel old. Um, but it's almost like no one's necessarily going to come out and flat out say, all right, everything you have is illegal. They're going to do this war of attrition where they're just going to make it harder and harder and harder to the point where you just, like you said, you're not even going to want to bother doing it anymore because it becomes more work than it's worth. Well, yeah, that, and that's that's exactly it. And that's where, like, looking forward, I, I joke about this with anyone who knows it. Like, we run a small company. I deliberately, like, I balance everything every decision i make is like can i handle it myself because i don't want to get involved with employees and and i love working with the animals and i i don't want to manage people i want to manage livestock and i don't want to do any paperwork so my if my if my brother is not willing to uh, take over the office when my mom decides it's, it's retirement time then like understory will very quickly become a canadian only company because i have no stomach for for the amount of paperwork and organization that is involved in, in exporting on the on the way we do and that's and then partly with that in mind that's why you know we're diversifying the, into the dry goods and terrarium supplies and, and more and more into plants so that i can have you know if if i can't find the appropriate person to do the paperwork and run the office then i can run a very small company but it's a successful one just domestically and then on the other hand too i, I still do have concerns at some point it's just going to be even with the right staff in place to, to run the office and push the papers that it's going to become uh, it could become more problem than it's worth or like I said, it, it, if Air Canada stops taking live live cargo, like that would overnight change the very nature of our business. Um, so it's situations like that too. It's kind of frightening. Like we're we're dependent on airlines moving this stuff around. That I don't know how much they want to do it, and it's increasingly there's I know increasing pressure on them, and um, you know how they have to perform. So um, yeah, it's kind of kind of concerning when you, you look at it from these angles it's all it's all very i don't know what what the proper term is but it there's no sure things in this industry yeah it's it's convoluted it, it's it's yeah. just think of it like i mean anything with going to be a lot of red tape and a lot of bureaucracy always ends up becoming this huge involved process i mean even if you own a home and depending on where yeah. you live what kind of municipality like if you want to put a fence up in your backyard it becomes this whole long process with, with permits and inspections and whatnot. And at some, some point, sometimes it gets to the point where it's, it's absolutely ridiculous. Like you have to have a permit to have a, a yard sale, but. Well, yeah, that's, yeah. that's just it. Life, life becomes on and everything more and more cumbersome every year. Like I'd love to see a local government come in or government in general and just say, you know what our platform is. We're going to get through all this, cut through all this unnecessary red tape. Added. We're going to make life simpler. You know, like it's it's just it's so hard to do anything to do things legally anymore. It's like like you say, you need a permit often for a yard sale, or they want to permit kids on a lemonade stand and stuff. You know, liberties we took for granted are now regulated to to a crazy degree. So, and uh, it's just with every aspect of life, it's just you know, in Western life, it's just there's just too much too much legislation. Um, but that's what it seems like every every successive government just thinks they got to layer on red tape to do their job right. Yeah, I it's uh, I'll just I'll share one a anecdote about that and we'll move on. But a colleague of mine is in the is in the food service industry and he was telling me how he had a food truck and he was catering an event that was going to be a, a benefit fundraiser for 
the county's, I think it was like the Boy Scout chapter or something like that. So it was a, it was a charity thing. And the county, yeah. the county wanted, I think like $150 for him to have a permit to raise money for the county. Yeah, that's crazy. <laughs> I mean, but that's, yeah, that, that's, that's how, how everything just seems to get muddied. And you'd think that it would be counterproductive to people's goals. All right. Well, if you want to have a, a clean legal trade that's done properly, yeah. you'd think you'd want to facilitate it in, in a way that would encourage that. And like, people are shocked that there's an illegal trade. Well, you made it so hard for people who have an interest in doing this the right way to do it. You've basically cut them out of the equation. So of course people are going to come in and they're going to do the wrong thing. Yeah, no, that's that's like anything. It's, if there's demand, people will find a way to get it, but it, it's going to make it harder for people to do it to do it the right way. But uh, it's yeah, I don't I don't know. I think I think demand, you know, long term, all, all things considered, the hobby looks good long term. But again, it's just there's peripheral stressors that that I see really really bottlenecking the potential for growth. Um, that have nothing to do with demand or husbandry or anything like that. It's just the external forces or, or yeah, it might, might make things harder. Yeah. I mean, most expensive thing out there is the, is the, the price of paper because <laughs> yeah. the paper is going to get you where you need to be, whether it's money or permits or whatever. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah. So I wanted to ask you about a particular species that has kind of been, um, I'm trying to think of how I want to describe it. Uh, kind of like this, this to me at least, this like mystical, magical species. It even has this amazing, amazing scientific name, which I believe you've seen in the wild. And I'm gonna, I, I've never actually pronounced it out loud, but Exidibates mysteriosus. You have you seen these in the wild? Yeah, yeah, we've seen them several times over the years. Um, so yeah, it's a, it's an awesome frog. Uh, and you, you said it, you say it the way I say it, so. I'm going to assume that's correct, but I've often butchered many Latin names, so you're not out of the woods for sure. But uh, what I find, like, that's what I, maybe because I do like history, the history of that frog, I think, is, is as fascinating as the frog itself. And I don't know if most people realize, how, like, the, the circumstances under which it was discovered and then described and then rediscovered. But so in the, in the early 1920s, Harvey Bassler, who was a, a surveyor for British Petroleum, um, I think it was right after World, I would say the 20s, but it might have been right after World War One. Um, was surveying northern Peru and you know the Condor Mountains for for British Petroleum, and he collected not only Mysteriosus, he also collected from way out in the Pongo near the Pongo de Manzariche, Exidobates captivus. So he collected. He had the peace of mind while he's hiking. You know, this again, this is at a time when there's no GPS, there's no satellite navigation. He's He's maybe got a functioning compass and altimeter and a stubborn mule to help move through these, you know, mountains that still to this day, these areas are extremely remote and hard to get to. But I can't imagine what it'd be like in the 20s. And this guy, that you know, when he's surveying for a geological surveys for BP, he has the wherewithal to collect, you know, voucher specimens of what he considered, what he thought might be interesting new species. Um so that to me is fascinating. Like the, I often think of these, you know, the early turn of the century explorers as, you know, like their level of testosterone and it must have been through the roof to do what they've done. Like, you know, man, well, we often joke about, you know, this awful hike we just took or, or this or that. And then we get to town and we complain that the beer's not cold enough or something. And like, we think we're tough, but we're so soft compared to what these, these early explorers, you know, must have been, must have been suffering to, you know, for weeks on end trudging through the, you know, these Cordilleras 
uh, you know, with no trails, no nothing, just using a, you know, using an altimeter and a compass and, and a third testicle or something. I don't know. Like these men were built, must've been built differently back then to, to do this stuff. And then, and then just have the energy to collect stuff too. And to carry that with you is, is mind blowing. And then, so yeah, Charles Myers and John Daly described Mysteriosis in the eighties. Um, they got a hold of BP, lent them Harvey Bassler's notes. Um, and they, uh, as well, uh, and then he got they got a hold of the preserved specimens and described these two species. And his notes were so good that um, Mysteriosis was found basically precisely uh, was rediscovered, I think, in 1989 or 1990 by Schulte, um, precisely where Bassler had said he found it, you know, 60 years earlier. Um, so then Harvey Bassler has Bassler I named after him, and rightfully he should have several species named after him, I think. But uh, I just think he was a fascinating guy uh, doing an unbelievable track, an unbelievable time in history. I love the irony that a huge petroleum company was responsible for discovering and saving a frog. (laughs) Yeah. The irony there is great. Well, there's so much, like so much of the exploration that the early explorer, I mean, it was all, you know, there had to be a financial motivation. That's what, that's what they're after deposits. So, and that's, you know, without them sending out guys like Harvey and, uh, and others. I mean, a lot of this, a lot of these places wouldn't be explored. Um, so that those were the, you know, they were the trailblazers, really. Um, but yeah, so the the habitat it's from is is really unique. Um, you know, generally cliff faces with huge bromeliads, and then the the scrubby forest at the foot of these cliffs, and uh, and then there's you know a Peruvian named Manuel Fache found another population quite a ways to the southeast of the original populations, um, the small spotted form, and again really similar habitat, just you know a, quite a disjunction from the first population. So I think uh, you know there's got to be more populations of that frog tucked in the mountain, but they're they're really remote and largely inaccessible. And then, you know, the frogs can be way up on the cliffs and, you know, you know, maybe this might be a role for a good drone pilot to get close enough and the actual survey really good, you know, at the right altitude um, where there might be suitable spots to look. But I've got a feeling that we haven't seen the last of, you know, other population of Mysteriosis. I don't think they'll look too much different than than what we know, but it would be nice to know that there's more than just a couple populations out there. And I, I do think there is. Um, are they the only dart frogs that occupy this type of habitat? Yeah, they're the only ones um, we've seen. There's a like a Hyloxalis species that lives not too far from the uh, the fine spotted, the, the more recently described population. And I'm not sure if there's like an Amarega or a Hyloxalis. There probably is a Hyloxalis up in Santa Rosa de la Yunga with the you know the type the type form too. But I'm not sure. But yeah, there's pretty, you know, it's a unique habitat, so there's not not a lot. It's not hospitable to a lot of other dart frogs. It's not what we think of generally as dart frog habitat. If it wasn't for the bromeliads there, it would be completely inhospitable for frogs. But the bromeliads provide, you know, from the heat of the day, from the cool of the night, and uh, and obviously it gives them the, the phytotelm they need to, to reproduce in. So. Yeah, it just seems so unusual. When I read a little, I mean, what little I could find about the habitat, it, it just, to me, I'm like, this doesn't seem like anything remotely dart frog like should live here but they do no it's not but then i mean you have now in ecuador you have exitobates condor which is from an ex- if i remember right extremely high elevation cloud forest which again is not dart frog habitat so um so i think there, there's got to be more you know like 
there's so much potential in northern Amazonas and Cajamarca and uh, and southern Ecuador, like on the frontier with Peru. But the problem is there's landmines all through that region too. From you know both Peru and Ecuador mined the border years ago during their war. So um, at least the Peruvian side, that you know the rumors are still very heavily mined um, with landmines. So surveying is is a risky proposition, I guess. Yeah, that sounds like a serious buzzkill. Yeah, yeah, it's not something I'm looking forward to, <laughs> to doing. I like, I like my legs in life yeah. <laughs> more than I'd like to see a new poison frog, maybe. But uh, now that but makes just, an it's, that makes an explorer. <laughs> yeah, yeah, but it's it's just fascinating the potential that that there still is lots. I mean, there's still loads to discover, um, in in so many countries still. I think there's probably oodles in Colombia and Brazil and uh, definitely in Peru and Ecuador even and. And, uh, you know, and, and there's even, you know, lost species that are, that are worth pursuing, like, um, Abditus in Ecuador. And, uh, you know, that it's not so much, I don't know that they're lost or that just no one's really properly surveyed for them. So that, that kind of stuff is what I find fascinating, just the potential. I mean, look what they've done with Adelopus in Ecuador. I mean, with Waikiri, they rediscovered all these Adelopus and now they got them breeding. It's crazy. Yeah. It's amazing. I, I, I always thought that, that. I mean, I didn't, number one, I didn't realize until recently how many species were in the Adelopus genus, let alone the yeah. fact that they would recover so well. And then now we have people in the States, uh, I mean, Nick, Nick Stacy's really the, the, the one who pulled it off, yeah. but they're, they're, they're captive bred and now available like it was nothing. It's amazing. Yeah. And you should see like the diversity that Waikiri's breeding now for, and you know, they're even hoping to get re-releasing a couple species. It's like they've bred, you know approaching 10 species maybe stuff that was essentially you know, feared extinct and then all of a sudden they've they've unlocked the, the husbandry the point they can reliably breed them you know stuff that we all thought was next to impossible to breed it's, it's fascinating yeah um, it's amazing so we you know we're, we're so we're quick to, to go to the doom and gloom with the, proclaiming an extinction but we really don't have a proper understanding yet i don't think of the, the boom and bust population in nature i mean because we don't have data from you know really how long has it been since western scientists or any scientists have been paying attention to the poison frog or adelopus population dynamics i mean we have anecdotes from the past but who knows how accurate that actually is and we don't we don't know fully what contributes you know it might be might be a pathogen or it might be you know weather it might be you know in what role is you know atrazines and all these hormones and chemicals playing in the water now uh there's a lot of questions and there's a lot of questions, you know, even like microfaunal levels, like, do they vary? And as data, like, we don't, we don't know, no one's ever measured microfauna 50 years ago, let alone now. So there's, so it's so complex, all the, these issues that it's such a, it's so hard to get a, a proper perspective on, I think. But it's, it's fascinating to see stuff coming back um, after, after so many years too. It's like, where do, where do these animals go during this time that we're not seeing them? Like, are they underground or, or is there just one or two, you know, super survivors that are able to breed again or, or what? It, these are all the same things that interest me. Uh, I'll be honest. And I feel like just like you, you're right. You have to ask yourself, uh, how long ago were people actually looking at these things and paying attention? And when you, you look at patterns in nature, I, I mean, how long, how long have we really been paying attention past what, 50 years, hundred years, maybe? Well, yeah. 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 And that's great. If we're honest with ourselves, we haven't. And then, you know, 
you know, the anecdotes from the past, like this guy, old guy was, oh, these toads used to be six on every boulder on every stream. Well, maybe they were, but is that also accurate? I mean, I'm familiar with, you know, the fish stories. That's people tell, like, you know, hindsight, your ex-girlfriends were always prettier than they were. And, you know, hindsight's always rosier, I think. So, uh, you know, how, how much of that, how much of that comes into play, too? And, and maybe, you know, I have no doubt that there was thriving populations of Adelopus in these streams, but how many were there actually? And, and, and maybe there were, I'm sure there were in, in spots just teeming with them, but, but what's, I guess, what's, is what's normal and what's, you know, is it, is, is that why there's so many more so many species maybe because they do die off every so often, every hundred years there's a cycle or every two, 300 years. And we have no way of knowing cause they're not going to leave a trace. So. Yeah, exactly. There's a reason we don't find fossils anywhere in the rainforest. Everything just decays so oh, yeah. quickly. Yeah. That, and that's, yeah, that's just it. So in, in pathogens and all this, I mean, this is, every species, uh, you know, it's, it's, as its own fungus or its own pathogen. It's, it's, it's part of life. And if something didn't, you know, keep these populations in check, you know, the, uh, you know, the way I can be overrun with poison frogs. Like, absolutely, there would be nothing but poison frogs. And, and same with other, you know, amphibians be overrun. Like, something's got to keep these things in check, too, because they're, they're explosive. You know, some of these species are explosive breeders. If, if there wasn't predators or there wasn't, you know, pathogens, it's, you know, we'd have probably have too many of them. So, or maybe, you know, that that's what happens. The population grow too much that it's not sustainable. That's what allows a, a pathogen to take hold for a while. Well, it's another dynamic explosive breeding when you think about it. If you're going to give birth to thousands of offspring, theoretically, that could protect you from... <sighs> It could protect you from an extinction event, or I shouldn't say protect you from it, but it could help you recover from it. So I right. feel like a lot of people, a, a lot of people underestimate amphibian abilities to adapt and to survive certain events because I feel like if the decline was that bad, and obviously we, as as a species, we've taken steps to to protect and, and intercede so that we're not more of the problem. But like you said, there's many problems out there that we might not even necessarily be aware of. But when you think about right. it, it's, I mean, most amphibians by and large, especially frogs, really aren't particularly that difficult to breed. And the more we figure it out, the more it just makes sense that, okay, well, if, if I have a pair of frogs and they can have a thousand offspring and we can make sure that those thousand offspring survive, assuming there's not a genetic bottleneck issue, I mean, that's, that's, that's a substantial effort as opposed to something like a panda or an elephant, which takes so many years to be able to reproduce and produce a, a viable pair that can reproduce and continue. I mean, with frogs, it just seems like a no brainer. Oh yeah. Like I, I think frogs are, are the ultimate survivors. I think, you know, they, they do so well. Like, uh, you know, I just think that what I see in Ontario, like I'm surrounded by, uh, you know, and where I grew up was surrounded by agriculture, you know, I have intensive cash cropping, you know, pesticide use and these creeks are still full. And there's, I swear, you know, again, I see more frogs than my parents' house when I go visit them in the day. I ever remember seeing as a kid. Uh, but I don't think pesticide use is plain. Um, but it's, uh, and then, you know, where I'm at, like my vernal ponds in the in the back of my forest, they're, they're loaded it every year with, you know, frogs and spring peepers and chorus frogs and gray tree frogs and, you know, everything every species that's native to this area is is thriving back there so, and it's it's not what i consider it's not a pristine environment by any stretch it's got to be the amount of 
agricultural runoff is to be astounding in some of these creeks and streams because it, we're surrounded by it. They're spraying constantly. Uh, but yet the frogs are doing awesome at a, you know, on a superficial level. They look great every year. They come back, they breathe. They, I hear them singing every time it rains. Every time it rains, the road is loaded with toads and frogs running across it. So it seems like things, the frogs themselves are doing well. But it seems like not, maybe not the best time to be a frog, but yet they're, they're still surviving. Yeah, I, I agree. And I, I've, I've heard that from many people that it, it's, you know, the, the, the narrative of the amphibian decline and, and like you said before, the, the, the doom and gloom, I don't think that the general public really understands how a lot of these species are recovering. I mean, even certain species being rediscovered with viable populations. And, you know, like you said, they, they are, they have the potential to be excellent survivors. And I just, I, I often question, you know, it, it is, how is that narrative working? Because there's a lot of species. I mean, Adelopus, the genus is, I mean, with exceptions of tickies, the tiki has some pretty unique problems, but there's definitely hope for survival. And it's not like as grim as it was 20, even 30 years no. ago when we were losing species left and right. Yeah. And that's, that's where I think, you know, the narrative, you know, it's, it fails in that there, there should be the good news should be, should sell better than the bad news, but that's unfortunately what it doesn't. But I think all this negativity and doom and gloom, I think it's so it's self-defeating and it's almost will disenfranchise people from even trying or even caring. I hear it's the end. It's the end over and over. They're going to believe it. And they're not going to want to help, or they won't get involved with legitimate, you know, conservation concern. Um, you know, there's plenty, I think there's plenty of room for hope. Um, you know, I'm far more optimistic than I was when I got started because when I got started was when we started hearing all the, the news of the declines, but it just, you know, thankfully it's, it's not, it's not come to pass as was, was predicted. But, and I think it's, it's really, we have to be, we have to be optimistic or, you know, I guess if without optimism, then, then what's the point of fighting for any future if you're not fighting for, for hope and, and optimism? And I'm, you know, for the most part, extremely optimistic about the future of so many amphibians. I couldn't agree more. And I feel like a lot of that support comes from the hobby. When you think about it, I mean, who's going to care about these things? People who see them and can appreciate them every day. Like, I, I just, it's frustrating when I hear, like, what you mentioned to me about the societies in exportation and whatnot, and how it, it's so difficult for people who are doing the right thing and, and serve a dual purpose of supplying the hobby with frogs that are, I mean, whatever term people like to use, sustainable, but frogs that haven't, frogs that are not causing a negative impact on the environment. And it's frustrating to see that, you know, that doom and gloom narrative constantly persist and the contributions of hobbyists, like much like you, I mean, you've contributed incredibly to this hobby. And I just, I don't feel like it should be difficult for people like you and, and, and others that I've had on the show to continue to do this type of work when it only benefits, it only benefits the world. I mean, I don't see any, any downsides to this. Yeah. Yeah. I don't, I don't either. I think it's so important to have for, for like, you know, for kids and younger generation, like God, if they don't have access to wildlife, who, who's going to be the next generation to give a crap about the range? Like if they don't have access to something tangible, they can interact with from, from another, you know, the rainforest, it's another country and it's a world away. It might as well be on another planet if there's no no connection. If we can't foster connections to 
between the next generation or the younger generations or any generation really between them and the rainforest that's the role that not just frogs but snakes exotics fill it i think if it will instill in so many of these people an understanding of you know the home the native habitat or the native ranges of these species and maybe inspire some of them to, to travel there to do something for conservation and we don't know when the next you know major conservation leader or someone who might change the world comes from but if they don't if we don't inspire anyone and have access to this stuff then then they're, then they're that's when things become hopeless i think if we have a you know we raise a sterile generation of you know zombies on a screen that don't understand what the rainforest is don't understand its importance or and not just its importance the beauty of it and don't appreciate that then then that's when things become bleak and hopeless i agree i agree 100 percent I feel like it's, I mean, I, I apologize if I'm, I'm adding my own position, my own opinions to this stuff. I really shouldn't do that, but, uh, oh, no, it's great. I, I agree. I feel as though uh, seeing a picture of a frog is great. And as a child, that was my inspiration because I saw these animals in National Geographic with the, not with the assumption that I would never see them in real life. I was just like, yeah. you. I was fascinated by this stuff. And then once I actually got to see one physically and keep it and interact with it daily, be responsible for its care, watch it grow, it was an amazing experience. And I feel like people are so quick to be derogative towards people who want that type of experience and value it because I'd rather have a you know I'd rather have a handful of of beach sand in my hand than watch a beach on TV. It's just exactly. you you lose that intimacy and I agree with you that you you lose you lose your passion for something. You know, looking at a post or whatever on, on Instagram, Facebook, whatever TikTok, whatever people look at, it's fake. You're just seeing a representation of something. You're not seeing what it actually does, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah, you're that's exactly right. Yeah, and I think that's that's the important in a nutshell, that's why I defend the exotics hobby, you know, uh, and I will to the the day I die, I think it's it's vitally important for for the well being of the plant, despite the flaws and and the problems and the, you know whatever anyone wants to cast. I think it plays a very positive role in, in educating and more importantly, in inspiring. And in, we live in in a world where I think we're in desperate need of of ways to inspire, especially the younger generation, to to get outside and to and to live you know live a proper childhood. It's, it's not so sterile and, and uh, you know, experience a little more than, than just through a screen because it's, there's so much out there that I think uh, it'd, be, it'd be a shame not to experience it better. You know, with the exception of one person, every single guest that I've had on this show, I've said, how did you get into this? And it was always, oh, I started catching frogs and lizards when I was a kid. Almost every single guest out of like over 140 episodes, every single guest I've had on has said that. Yeah, and I, I think that's that's the tie that binds all these industries together. That's that's what we did. We we had a curiosity that could only be sated through through capture, through tactile, through touch. Right, like a kid, you want to touch everything for better or for worse. Um, but I remember, you know, I still remember catching my first garter snake and putting it in a little plastic container. I was so proud of myself. I was probably four years old, and uh, and. You know, my mom made me let it go because she realized it was going to cook in that container. But I, I was a champ then, and I remember—I still remember that now. And I've—I've I've loved snakes ever since. And you know, in that moment, my fear of snakes went—you know—went to fascination, like in an instant. Because then I, I got to realize this thing was nothing dangerous. It was an amazing animal, 
and I love snakes ever since. I've loved frogs ever since, and and that's that's never going to change. Um, and you know, it's uh, yeah, I think I think it's so important. You know, that the kids have access to be kids and they go catch stuff and raise tadpoles, even if they kill a few tadpoles. Who cares? You know, if they learn something from it, they get that experience. Like it's 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 part of learning. Um, you know, let let them let them interact with nature, even if it's clumsy, even if it's not not perfect. It's still if they're learning and they're inspired, then who knows the good that will come out of that in the future. That's very well said. Well, Mark, we're kind of at the end, but I wanted to just ask you, and we kind of we kind of alluded to it throughout the show, but. I mean, for the future, five years from now, 10 years from now, 20 years from now, where would you want to be with Understory? Um, where I want to be is, I would like to have a better, where I guess I'd like to get it to the point where I maintain a large collection but not breeding them all the time. So have more of a, I want to be primarily a plant company, I guess I'll start with that because it's a lot of work raising all these animals in it. In 20 years, I'm going to be a lot older than I am now. And plants, I'm infinitely just as fascinated with anymore with the plants as I am the frogs. But the frogs, I would like to maybe have a have the collection, have the core collection, have a larger collection, but not be as involved with not be breeding on. I don't want to be breeding anywhere near the scale now. Um, I know that, but I would like to have it maintained so that you know a large representative collection of what's here now, so that it can be passed on. It's but I, I don't foresee myself breeding any anywhere near the scale I am now. Um, but I'd like to have, you know, a better organized, I guess, inventory of of species and more, you know, sort of locked locked in, and then breed them when I need to, or if someone wants them, pull a clutch or two or whatever. But and then have something that's that's organized, that's properly curated, so that it can be passed. I don't know. I don't know what it get, who to get passed on to do or what, but I'd like it to be, you know, in a way. Like I'd like to keep doing this till I'm 100 if if my health allows me to. But I, I'll never retire. But it's a, I'd like to I'd like to have it. Yeah, I guess streamlined. You know, the business end I'd like to be most plants and and terrarium supplies, and the frogs be a a passion project and you know breed breed for local, breed for the odd good customer, maybe on export if I can still export, but but mostly be a plant company. Yeah. Plants are the plants of the future. Mark, I want to thank you so much uh, for for you know coming on and talking with me about all this stuff. It's it, it people like you fascinate me because you you literally you you've lived the dream. I mean, you've seen some amazing things and you've accomplished so much. It's it's interesting because one of the topics of discussion has been exploration and being a new set of eyes on something that may not have ever been seen before. And, um, you know, I'm, I'm just, I'm just so thankful that you came on and you're able to share your experiences with us. And, um, it's been a real pleasure. I mean, obviously you, you, you're primarily in Canada, but I mean, for anybody who wanted to get in touch or find out more or, or purchase frogs from you, how would they go about doing that? Uh, just for our website, they can contact us or reach out through Instagram or Facebook and try to get back to you as soon as I can. But the best, you know, the best way is through our, our website, um, or through Instagram, I guess. Awesome. Well, Mark, this has been definitely one of my, my favorite interviews. I'm really, I'm really glad we got to do this. Oh, me too, man. Anytime. I really enjoyed it. So yeah. I appreciate the opportunity. All right, everyone. Again, I want to thank Mark for taking the time to talk to us about all this stuff. I hope you guys enjoyed it. And, um, you know, I, I always enjoy having remarkable, remarkable people on the show. And it was a real pleasure having Mark on. 
So I hope you guys enjoy this one. Stay tuned. Uh, there's some fun stuff coming up on the horizon. So make sure you check it out. Hope you enjoyed this episode. Catch up with you in the next one.